Okay. Uh, yes. Here we are again, and here I am again talking. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, it is a special occasion. Uh, partly this convergence being in Canberra, uh, one of the associated tours of the tours going to many important properties. Uh, the day before the festival, there was a tour out to Millpost, David Watson and Judith Turley's property that we're here uh, to launch this book and to hear something from David about that story and a wider discussion about how permaculture can have a greater impact in the, the broadacre landscape. I think it's very significant that, uh, and serendipitous, that Charlie Massey's incredibly important book actually included uh, something about permaculture uh, it did have a focus on me because the structure of that book was stories of, of people's own relationship to, to land. Uh, and in that book, Charlie did mention that permaculture had mainly uh, had an effect in urban environments and on small rural properties, but not so much in broadacre agriculture. Though he did acknowledge this property and these people, David Watson and Judith Turley. And I think it's very significant also because they did the first permaculture design course with Bill Mollison, uh, along with people who went out and spread permaculture to the world, uh, that those ideas were already happening at Millpost in some of the toughest, uh, drier grazing country on the low fertility uh, parts of this Monero region. And like Rowan Reed, there's a story of connection to trees and tree crops in the context of grazing landscapes and grazing culture. But more than being Rowan being a forester amongst farmers, David is uh, part of that multi-generation of grazing uh, culture in the same landscape, connected to the same land where he grew up. And this is very, very rare in the permaculture world. I've known a number of people who were young people like me who were influenced by permaculture and the last thing they wanted to do, having come from farming, was to do that again. So many people who had the biophilic connection with nature and all of these new ideas went exactly away from that for very good reasons, but a great tragedy. Uh, one of those people who didn't do that and has just passed away was a, another great colleague, uh, uh, Rod May, 
uh, who you, we used to take our design courses to because it was one of the few uh, not broad acre on the scale of Millpost but a broad acre commercial farm that reflected permaculture principles. Now there's a lot of people who have been influenced by permaculture but never chose to call what they were doing permaculture. I've described over the years the multiple reasons why people did that. Some was because they looked at what was happening in the permaculture movement and decided they didn't want to be associated with a whole lot of kooky and crackpot ideas. Some did it because they were working within communities where that label was not useful even though they were completely directed and inspired by permaculture. Some didn't use the term permaculture because they saw their own efforts were so insignificant relative to their deeper understandings of what permaculture was. But I think it's a great and special thing for the permaculture movement that David and Judith have always called what they do permaculture. And it was a great privilege, really, to be involved in the, in the 90s in helping to re-energise or uh, help inspire a further step in the, uh, the development of Mill Post in a whole farm plan uh, process that I contributed to what was already a, a long unfolding uh, permaculture process on a broad acre uh, producing property and this little simple book which describes that story in uh, humble words <laughs> I'm getting teary it's <laughs> yeah because I have so much respect for these people uh, yeah, humble words of a humble story and persistence. Um, so I want to hand over to uh, this humble man, David, um, uh, to say something uh, more substantial. But officially, I am launching Millpost. Thank you. I wish you hadn't choked me up just before I... <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> it wasn't intentional. <laughs> um, let me say at the start that um, David bringing his entourage to Millpost on Friday and Saturday was possibly the most thrilling thing that's happened in my um, permaculture life. It, it really did uh, mean, mean a lot and um, it, was, it, was, it was just thrilling. I better get back on track. Um, yeah, I just want to tell you a little story about... Um, I've gone full circle because uh, I think it must have been 60 years ago my family brought me down onto the Cotter River here for a picnic and um, we... I can just remember it. And we, uh, 
took home with us, we were having a picnic under a, a big oak tree, and we took home with us a um, basket of um, acorns. And I'm not quite sure my father did why he did this, but um, he had a bulldozer and he had this area just beyond our garden um, ripped with that bulldozer. And um, yeah, I, as a, I don't know, must have been a four or a five year old, was able to go along those rip lines and poke in the acorns that we'd got down here on the Cotter River. And um, as I grew up, those um, oak trees grew up. And I think it might have been a uh, really um, seminal experience for me with tree growing because from, from uh, a child I've always been passionate about trees and growing trees. And uh, the oaks in particular, maybe from that experience, have been right at the forefront of my tree planting endeavours. And I just want to share with you today um, Thanks to Miles here, who mentioned the Quercus bicolor, yeah. one of the low tannin oaks. Um, on my <coughs> way here yesterday morning, I um, called in at one of the streets in Canberra and, and got a um, Quercus bicolor acorns. It's easy to collect acorns in, in Canberra because there's an index of, of the streets and what tree is there, and uh, another one here. So I'm going to pass around these acorns and I've got plastic bags. I want you to all put together a little parcel of acorns to take home with you and uh, to try, if you can, sow them somewhere where they will grow, like I did as a child. And the oak has so much more vigour if you can direct seed it. Uh, the taproot, which is a, an amazing thing, is never disturbed and it grows with more vigour. So um, I'll be passing these around. I'm also going to pass around some acorns from a Hungarian oak, which was a, a single tree in Canberra, perhaps only one Hungarian oak, Quercus farinetto, that a friend of mine from Bungendore identified as a threatened tree. It was, it was cut down, but he got some acorns before it was cut down and planted an avenue of them in Bungendore and they are now, it's a now a beautiful, big, mature avenue of oaks in Bungendore, and I've collected some acorns from there for you. Quercus farinetto. As I understand it, farina might be flower in Italian, so maybe it's a good, maybe it's a good, um, good one as well. So help yourself, um, take some acorns, and um, they're both good ones, I think. Sorry, I haven't got a PowerPoint with um, photos of Millpost. I'm going to pass around the book. Uh, while I'm talking, you can, have a, you can have a flick through. A lot of permaculture has been concentrating on the urban, and it's a very important thing. It's where probably 90% of Australians live, and retro suburbia is wonderful. And uh, we can understand why that's happening. That's where the people are. That's where the people who are listening are. Uh, that's where the green voters are in the inner city. So permaculture is 
you know, work where it counts. So we know why Retro Suburbia is happening and it's wonderful. But the rural is also important. Um, it's largely where our climate uh, is determined. Um, if Australia turns into a desert, look out. Because um, if you're in the city, you might be running out of water. Look, look what's happening in Cape Town now. Um, it could happen in Perth, it could happen in Adelaide. It can happen if, 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 if we lose the rainfall, we're all in trouble. The soil also, if it blows away, our food security's threatened. You, you know this. Um, so the climate, the soil, the water, so what, what happens in rural Australia is important, so we, we shouldn't ignore it. And my argument is, it's a permaculture argument, it's not urban or rural, it's both. We should be doing, we should be working both. Permaculture has really helped our farm, Millpost, um, in so many ways. Um, the thing is, when you get into permaculture, it's, uh, it becomes love of the land, and we, we love our farm, and um, our friend, colleague, permaculture colleague from the Northern Tablelands, Deepwater, um, Andrew Kerr, who's also passionate about oaks and black locust and a wool grower. What's happening around his area is um, family farms are disappearing or being amalgamated and um, conglomerates of land are emerging where he said there's not a lot of love. Um, and uh, so that's a critical thing that um, permaculture is helping millpost through um, you know we're really connected to the land and we want to stay there and that we can bring care to the land that probably corporate agriculture can't do that what about a sheep farm being um, permaculture at the festival a gentleman came up to me and he said how, how can a sheep farm be be permaculture um, what about the hard hooves um, Bruce Pascoe was saying, um, you know, the, uh, the sheep have destroyed the, um, the yam daisy, the murnong. It only grows in moss. Well, um, I can understand why Bruce thinks that, but the fact is it's not sheep that are the problem, it's, it's how they're managed. And with um, holistic management, it's possible to set up your farm so that the sheep are only on the, the, the ground for a short number of days each year and then they're rotated and uh, the life in the soil, um, the aeration from the, from the worms and the biological life in the soil can allow yam daisies and bulbine lilies and wildflowers to flourish. We have them uh, on our, the, the Murnong reasonably abundant on Millpost. In fact, we've made it a, uh, an emblem or a logo for our little yarn business. What about the fact that wool is a global commodity? Uh, you know, going to China, to, um, to Europe, that's not permaculture, that's not local product for local people. But 
um, we can try and get around that and we're doing that with our yarn business where we're trying to have our own wool processed if possible we're going to get it as local as possible and it's available for um, local people and the thing is you've got to look at the alternatives you know what are the alternatives to um, to to wool there's cotton and we've all seen the dust blowing from the cotton farms um, the synthetics, which are fossil fuel based. The fact is, our hilly country is not really suited um, to other enterprises anyway. It's not cropping country. It's not uh, really horticultural country. Uh, we have severe, you know, we have spring frosts. Some of the alternative land uses are like pines, which monoculture, the biodiversity is um, destroyed and uh, that's not ideal, it's not what our family wants anyway. Um, then there's hobby farms, uh, a neighbouring sheep property has recently been sold and it's going to be carved up into um, hobby farms and the layout of that is appalling. The houses are kind of clustered reasonably closely but the blocks they have to be 80 hectares each they're going straight up this uh, steep hill just to achieve the area you need for a um, house permit so that is really problematic and in any case the hobby farms around here most of the people are commuting to work so that uh, the fossil fuels involved in all the commuting is hardly um, a good idea so Having said all of that, I'm not that 100% committed to sheep. As David said a long time ago, the, the sheep is really like a caretaker land use. And his design, sheltering the whole farm, is um, sheltering the farm for whatever enterprise is there. It doesn't have to be sheep. It's what suits us at the moment. And, uh, you know, maybe kangaroo farming would be better. But there's all sorts of um, challenges there with kangaroo farming not the least of which is fire control. We can use a mob of sheep to reduce the fire hazard west of the homestead. How would we do that with kangaroos? So how has permaculture helped Mill Post? The first thing is the psychological. Um, you know, we've nearly been there 40 years. We still love what we do. We get into drought, but the trees growing up around us boost our morale, you, you feel like you're still making progress even in drought. And um, I think this is, you know, quite a big thing. When I went to Mill Post, I was the only person living there. Um, now there's 13 and a half people living there. Um, we all love it. And um, it's kind of bucking the trend of family farms in Australia where, you know, we're getting rural depopulation. I think if they had knew about permaculture, we're practicing permaculture, a lot more um, you know, family farms might survive. Not just the psychological, the, the food we grow. We, it's, a, it's a major um, priority for us. You know, the vegetables, the, um, the milk, the meat, the eggs. Um, we're, Really, um, it's a high priority. We put, you know, the compost, the worm farms, a lot of energy into that. 
it's healthier food, it sustains us, but it saves us a lot of dollars. We don't have to go and buy so much food. So that's, that's, um, and because we're doing that, we can afford to reduce our stocking, stocking rate. Charlie's coming to our farm tomorrow to class our sheep because it's, it's dry, uh, we need to cut our numbers. We can afford to do that. We're not desperate to have a height, you know, to, to, to keep that many sheep there. The, uh, another way permaculture helps us is with, with, we're a low input system. We're not buying in fertilisers, um, we're more interested in profit than productivity. We're trying to work with our native grasses so that um, they don't need fertiliser. Um, and a lot of our work we can do on foot or with bicycles. If you come to Millpost, you'll see bicycles everywhere. We can muster our stock with um, uh, bicycles or on foot. So it's, um, it's an enterprise that lends itself to um, post-peak oil. The energy um, issue as well, um, we use a lot of wood on the farm, we're not, um, so, you know, we've got all these uh, wood heaters, six wood heaters, we've got four uh, wood stoves that heat our water, a couple of brick ovens, so we're, we're self-reliant with energy um, for cooking and heating. And we also have solar energy. We have 56 solar panels um, that are connected to the grid, but we can use that energy to pump water, to heat water when the sun's shining. And we have another um, 10 solar panels that um, off the grid that um, uh, provide power to those two houses. I don't know that, I mean, that's all a part of, the energy's a big part of permaculture. The thing is, the big thing is the design of the whole farm. I'm going to pass around um, David's plan. This um, plan transformed our farm. When I went to the farm, we had eight. Um, when I went to the farm, we had about eight or nine paddocks, and this plan has. Um, we've now got a hundred on the plan. We haven't got to a hundred. Hundred. Um, Paddocks just yet, but uh, I don't know. It, it was almost in intuition. I know that David was able to <laughs> maybe recognise that one day we might need a lot of paddocks, which we do with the holistic management now, rotating the sheep. Um, it's really been helpful to um, to have the new layout, which is based around land form and riparian. Um, so yeah, we're, and we've got shelter everywhere. Like I said, whatever the land use will be. The, um, the farm is, is, is sheltered. Another thing about the permaculture in our farm is the use of deciduous trees. There's plenty of farms around Australia that have got um, revegetation with native plants and we, we do that as well. We've, we've got um, native windbreaks everywhere that help with the birds connecting remnants, um, allowing you know, wildlife corridors all over the farm. It's nearly all native. But we also use deciduous trees, and I think that is a permaculture thing, the embracing of um, exotic um, vegetation um, for its qualities. 
we're, we've got um, we're getting deep shade in the paddocks for the for the stock from the deciduous trees, which you don't really get from uh, eucalypts. Um, and with global warming, that deep shade is increasingly valuable. We've also got the benefit, fodder benefit from these deciduous trees. They, the trees can be pruned and lopped. Our cows, our sheep love that, love that fodder. It's a, it's a great supplement for, for our grazing animals. And a big thing is the deciduous trees are giving us um, some more protection, hopefully in a fire, that um, we've got surrounding the homestead a lot of deciduous trees. So I've told you why broad scale is, in, is significant. I've told you how um, permaculture is helping our farm. In summary, I just want to say uh, I think Millpost is a good news story. Um, it's it's worth worth sharing. I don't know. A lot of you might be designers. You might have friends. Um, or family or clients eventually who might be thinking about permaculture in a broad scale context, I'm going to encourage you to buy the book. Um, it's a $30 investment. There's 11 lessons in there that we've learned. You'd only have to avoid one of those mistakes or, less, or learn one of those lessons from the book and you would have paid for it. It would have paid for itself. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not, I'm saying Millpost is a good news story, but we, we of course, I'm not being complacent, we have lots of challenges. We've just been talking about one up there in the other room with Sam and Frank, the farm succession. Um, that is a big challenge we face and we're, I'm hoping permaculture um, thinking might be able to help us work, work through that or holistic management. We have kangaroos out of control on our farm and uh, that's another challenge. We haven't really got the answer to that. Um, we've hardly touched on the Aboriginal management uh, of, the, of, of our land. We have had a stone axe quarry discovered on our land and lots of the local tribes have come out and had a look and we're hoping to um, have that nominated as an Aboriginal place where they might come regularly. We've recently invited uh, <coughs> um, Uncle Wally to come and do a cool burn on the farm. We've got a lot to learn there about the potential of that. Um, in, in my mind, I still think there's a little bit of a debate about fire. Um, fire, especially cool burns, I don't know, they're probably good. They, they trigger um, maybe some seeds and things to germinate that you won't get without fire. Um, on the other hand, there's the soil web people saying, and, so, and Alan Savory saying that fire you know, destroys life in the soil. So um, it's an interesting one that I think is kind of unresolved. So now, one of my pet hates is um, experts getting up and so-called experts getting up and lecturing. So I want to move now to a, a new stage in this, um, in this little session where we have a bit of a brainstorm on how do we get um, permaculture spread 
onto broad-scale farms in Australia. Um, for me, it's a no-brainer, it's a good idea, but it's not really happening. Uh, how, do, how can we give it a bit of a kick along? Well, I got a big head start with a, you know, inheriting a debt-free farm. Um, so that, that, was, that was a big help. And now we're, we, we do have financial pressures. Our land value is going up, our rates are going up. Um, but the land itself is, I, I'm afraid, still um, it's losing its productivity because kangaroos and the global warming, the heat, we're getting more bare ground, we're getting less pasture. So we've got financial pressure now increasing, but uh, we're very well placed to deal with it. And our yarn enterprise is one way we're responding to it by trying to value add the product. We can sell our wool for, um, say, well, it's a very good prices at the moment, $20 a kilo. If we turn it into yarn, we can maybe sell it for $250 a kilo. Sorry, I'm realising people at the back won't be hearing the questions, and we have got this, so i to use it. I think uh, one of the reasons why permaculture hasn't been well applied on broad-scale farming to date is the perception that uh, you can scale up backyard techniques and you know, backyard polycultures and try and do it on a very broad scale and make a living out of it. And it's, it, it hasn't worked as many people who've left the city and tried to do it and, and it's failed. So we need to uh, follow David's lead in, um, in recognising that as you increase the scale of your operation, you've got to increase, uh, change your techniques. So we need to publicise all of the, the techniques that Rod May and David and, and other people who've successfully applied some of the permaculture ideas to broad-scale farming and use that as a basis for promoting uh, you know, re regenerative agriculture, of course, is, the, is one of the, the latest tools. And we'll be hearing from uh, uh, next session about some uh, ecological burning practices, I hope, too. Hi, David. Um, full disclosure, I'm not a farmer and I know uh, very little about broadacre farming, um, but in relation to the question you've posed, um, you hit on something during your presentation about multi-generational farming. Um, I'm the kind of person who looks for leverage when it comes to change and perhaps there's an opportunity there to appeal to other people on the land that by having uh, younger members of the family come and spend time with you, there's a possibility to keep them on the land and there may be something in that. Uh, thanks very much, uh, very inspiring. Uh, my question to all of us really is uh, how do we get access that key piece of real estate that Charlie Massey spoke about, the piece between people's ears. And for me, I, I, I think that's the key question about getting permaculture principles into the broadacre context. How do we uh, help farmers see? How do we sow seeds on fertile soil? Or what is the key way to engage as that concrete uh, softens and becomes ready for the seed of permaculture? What's the strategic way to engage there? I'd really love it if other people could contribute to that question. Um, I'd just like to 
Um, my name's James and I've got a property in the same area as David's but with my wife Lisa we're very new entrants um, to how we're living and working with the land and I'd just like to say it's how do we do it I think we just do it by doing it we've so far planted over 2,000 trees on our only 100 acre property but we certainly looked to David's example with Millpost as an inspiration but I think it's the power of the case study um, Charlie Massey's work is to tell that story from different places, tell it to regional council planners, tell it to local land services, so that you can see that we've done it here, look what happens when you can hold more water in the land, look what happens when you plant more trees, when you think about how you're connecting to those natural flows and processes, restoring connectivity across landscape. And Millpost is a great example of restoring that connectivity and. Uh, really grateful to David and Judith for the work they do. Right, um, I may apply for a job on the Observer. Ah, mm. <laughs> anyway, quickly, um, social permaculture and what you're doing here, I think it's a connection. And, you know, people back to the land, people need to uh, be fed and housed and kept busy. So the Wolfing Program and volunteers and the Farm, farm Next or Farm Help System, that's certainly how you can get people back to the land to help you. That's a comment and a suggestion. Uh, just in res response to your, your question, um, I, was, I was moved uh, a few, few months ago just in a cafe with uh, a woman who was making uh, all her own clothes and, and, and she told us about a cooperative where there's, there's a, a collab of makers and they all make their own stuff. And um, I think just doing what you're doing, sharing your story, um, and even now it's like, oh, they, they need wool, these makers. And so... You know, permaculture seems to be about connecting, connecting all the dots as well. So, um, yeah, it just feels like keep keep sharing and keep doing what we're doing. We've got a couple of minutes left, and I'd really like to invite Judith to come up as well because she's the other <laughs> the other key person at Millpost for all this time. And I think you had a question or a comment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I probably don't need this, do I? Oh, all right. Okay. Um, this young gentleman, where is he? That one there. Was his name James? James. Yep. Look, that was um, that was the big question. I think that that usually comes up at most convergences, as it should, and it's been coming up since um, when was it? The first one we went to in the early 80s. How, how do we? You know, permaculture is just so intuitive. It's just so. It's common sense. It's been said. It's common sense. How the hell do we get people to do it? Well, we haven't worked it out really yet, have we? Although every year we're, we're progressing a little bit, I think, although we did backslide, didn't we? But anyway, that wasn't our fault. That was the, that was the 80s. Um, but um, there are a lot of people thinking about it. My, my feeling is that it's just time, sadly. And, and maybe, as, as Bill said, you know, permaculture is an idea that time has come, finally now, I don't know. Um, so yeah, good. Everybody, everyone should be thinking about that all the time. How do we get people to change their minds? Because that's what we've got to do. We've just got to get people to change their minds. Then everything else will change. Um, and the other thing was, um, I think uh, David hasn't mentioned, but we ha we have actually we have actually influenced. Uh, when we when we first started, we decided uh, the best thing we could do, like a lot of the other designers, were going out and spreading word around the world, which was fantastic. But it wasn't what we wanted to do because we loved our land and we wanted to stay there and do things. And we decided to be 
a, a model farm, a model permaculture farm, or we try to be, we would try to be. And that's what the book's about, how we, you know, the steps we took. Um, but at least two of our neighbours, probably more, but at least two of our neighbours that I can think of, have, have over the years turned around and seen what we're doing, um, sometimes from the top of a hill, and, and they've actually become um, aborophiles. Is that, the, is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> Tree lovers. And they, yeah, they were very, they were very um, well, conservative farmers to start with. Um, and they've planted lots of oaks. They've plant, they've, yeah, they've, they're transforming the landscape. And one of those, one of those fa farming families has a lot of land. And wow, they've really changed, um, in a way that we could never have done, changed the landscape around Bungendore. So if you go to Bungendore and you see that there's lots of, a lot more trees in the landscape, um, that's, that's partly because they did see what we'd done and they loved it and they went on and did it. And so every time you get a permaculture farm or a, or a similar farm... I've got another minute. No, that's my, that's my minute. <laughs> I'm just about to finish. Every time you, you know, every time somebody does something good like that in the landscape, and people can see that it's good, then at least some of the people who see it will um, will follow suit. I think, and that is probably one of the best things we can do. So that was all I had to say. Thanks. <laughs> Question or comment? A semi-organised system of mentoring, I think, would be terrific for, you know, the newbies that come onto the land. Yes, that was... Uh, I've got a little list of things that we could maybe do to help, and one is, is a register of um, uh, farms where... Per permaculture farms, holistic management farms, where you have an, an annual... T annually, you would have a tour of that farm. Um, so people can go and, and see. Another thing I think we need is a register of um, not designers but facilitators. Um, the farm that Judith was just talking about, the big farm next to us, the matriarch approached us. We want to do a, something like what you've done. Um, who can we get to help us with a farm plan? And um, I mentioned it to Meliodora, I got nothing. Um, I <laughs> Judith thought of an old friend, Cole Freeman, um, and he, he, he said he, he would like to do it. And what he um, proposed was very similar to the Dan Palmer, um, David Holmgren, their latest idea of um, working slowly, um, not a master plan, but working with the owners to um, get them to do the groundwork and then, you know, just one little thing. I'm sure you'll agree that if you've been in this room since early this morning and heard Charles and then Rowan and David and Judith, uh, there's so much sign for hope. And personally, I'm so excited. I plant a few trees every year. I'll always be wishing to plant more and I've been given such a boost. Uh, so thanks so much to David and also to David and also to Judith. And I think you're David and Judith, you're around today. Yeah, so there's plenty of times to ask more detailed questions uh, as the day goes on, but we have to move on to the next session. And yes, so big round of applause, please.